It's time for the Creative Real Estate Podcast, your source for out-of-the-box real estate investing strategies brought to you by Ecospace.com. Now, here's your hosts, Adam and Jason. And we're back with the Apartment Investing Show. I'm your host, Adam, AAA Adams, and I'm, I'm excited to have our guest on with us today. His name is Edward Sittler, and he is, he's been, what, what did you do before um, when you were, right before you, you quit, you were paralegal, right? Yeah. You did that for like 10 years? Yeah, something okay. like that. Okay, that's, that's awesome. All right, so, so he was a paralegal, and in, in 2018, uh, he had a business partner. They had done a few like smaller deals together, I think single family. But they, they, he was, they were both on the West Coast, but not really in the same city. And they ended up deciding at the same time, we need to, we need to get into syndication. We want to close on some bigger stuff. What's really cool about his story is number one, he ended up taking a, a coaching program in, in the multifamily space. And then the next thing that he did is he quit his paralegal job. So I'm I'm going to ask you a little bit about that. He completely quit mm-hmm. something that he had been doing for uh, you know double digits, a decade, and then uh, he a- ended up realizing that it was kind of hard to to purchase properties in like these the West Coast. So what he did, it's amazing. He actually moved from from I think California all the way over to Dallas and he started doing deals there. So he was a member of a coaching program in Dallas and he ended up going passive for uh, passive that we call that LP or limited partner in some syndications. So I'm going to ask you, Ed, why did you go passive? I'm looking forward to your question on that because there's a lot of people that say, I want to save my money for like my own deal. I don't want to they say, I don't want to waste it on being passive. Um, And so I'm just, I'm very curious about that. I personally recommend the people that I work with that they do go passive first. Um, And I think that it's easier to raise money when you're passive, but I, I want to hear your story. And so, yeah, he moved from San Francisco to Dallas and he's been passive in these four deals. But what's kind of cool is, I I don't remember when it is, Ed, that you closed on the 172 units, so I'm going to ask you about that. But you are the main sponsor and asset manager and boots on the ground of 172. And so, first question, what was the deal, what was the biggest deal that you completed before this 172? Yeah, so the biggest one uh, before that was a seven-unit um, so I've done a couple single family, a couple duplex, and then a seven unit in Tacoma. Uh, it was like a real janky deal. It was like it, one of those old houses that had been like chopped up into apartments over like, you know, 80 yeah. years or so. It was, it was, you know, it was interesting. It was fun, but uh, not what we wanted to be doing really. Got it. Well, give a, give us a bit of background on just you, your story. I know, um, yeah, I probably didn't do your background justice talking a little bit about what you were doing before you got into um, syndications, but share, share that with us so that we can kind of really understand who you are and where you come from. And then I uh, am excited to talk to you about your journey going from, you know, wanting to do syndications until you close this 172. Mm-hmm, sure. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess, you know, sort of career wise, um, 
like you mentioned, I had been a paralegal basically for my whole career before I got into multifamily. Um, and I guess it was one of those situations, you know, probably a lot of people relate to this where I was like, I graduated from college. I really had no idea what I wanted to do. I was just, you know, I kind of bummed around literally for like a year or two, played in a band, like <laughs> that kind of thing. Um, you know, I thought I wanted to be like a professional musician for a little while. So I, I was really just all over the place. I didn't really have any focus, didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, so I just kind of fell into like the legal industry, to be honest, this is one of those things where I probably applied to a bunch of different jobs just because, you know, I had to eat and I ended up getting like a temp job at a law firm. And that just kind of spiraled into my career, essentially, just as a paralegal. So it was never anything I like sought out. It was never my passion. It was never like, oh, I want to be a paralegal. I mean, honestly, I don't think anybody really wants to be a paralegal. But <laughs> uh, so, you know, it was that kind of situation. And, um, you know, for me, real estate was basically a way out of that. It was my ticket out, essentially. Um, and that was kind of my my first motivation to to start getting into real estate like more seriously. So what year did you get started real estate wise? Um, I think my first actual investment was maybe 2014 or 2015. It was like a, a single family in Kansas City. I bought it like turnkey, sight unseen. And to this day, I've never been to Kansas City. Mm. <laughs> yeah, you still so, own that house? Uh, no, I sold that one. Uh, Okay. Okay. A year, year or so ago. Yeah. Um, cool. But, you know, at that time, I wasn't thinking of real estate really as like something I would go into as a career. Uh, it was just like an alternative investment. You know, it's like, well, I don't want all my money in like stocks. So let's try, uh, you know, some kind of turnkey real estate. So I bought that. I had an, another small duplex in Indianapolis. Same deal. Turnkey. Never saw it. Uh, that one sold as well. Um, so that was kind of my start, really just very hands-off, didn't know what I was doing at all, <laughs> you know, just uh, buying deals out, out in the middle of nowhere that I never saw. Um, <laughs> and then I was, you know, I was in San Francisco at that time. And uh, then the first deal I kind of really started getting more hands-on with was I bought a duplex with a friend of mine in Oakland, where we also lived. So we did kind of a house hacking thing. Um, and that one started to kind of open my eyes a little bit to like, okay, maybe I could actually do get into this as, as like a career, like as something I, cause I, you know, I really enjoyed that process of like being really hands-on with that, with that deal. Um, and, you know, it worked out pretty well. We sold that one too. Um, and so, yeah, I think that was the first time where I, I really started thinking seriously about, uh, you know, getting into it as a career that, that would probably have been in like uh, 2016 or so. All right. And then, and then you bought a seven unit as well. Um, and you've done a few different things. You've, you've been the asset manager on some of them. The next question that I have comes stems from a discussion that I see all the time on different forums, even, even on bigger pockets. It's a discussion that I, I hear a lot of people talking about that go to meetup groups and things like that. And what they might say when they listen to your story, uh, and they they know that you joined a coaching program. Um, they know they heard that at the beginning, and and but you you had done like some single family in different places, um, Indiana. Uh, uh, what where, where was the first one that you Kansas said again? City. Kansas Missouri. City, <laughs> um, and then up up and down the east west coast. It sounds like so. 
Mm-hmm. You've, you've had this experience. You did even had a seven unit. But what made you decide that even though you had been doing it for a few years and you, you had seen the ins and outs, why, why did you join like a, a program and like try to learn more? Because that, that can be costly. Mm-hmm. And some people can think to themselves, well, I don't know what the coaching program, it could have been 20 or 30 or $40,000 or some of them are 150,000. I've, I've heard of a few <laughs> that, you know, and, and regardless, even if it was only like 20 ish thousand, um, you could have maybe invested that into a deal. And, and some people say, well, you could have maybe learned that amount of money that you spent. You could have like just bought a deal and learned those things on your own. So kind of share with us your reasoning, your motivations, like why did you end up Mm -hmm. deciding that that was the right move for you? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's, you know, a common, common uh, question people would bring up. Um, I mean, you know, the way I look at it is, you know, the, the other path, right. That they would say, all right, you could have just, you know, save that money, keep doing what you're doing, just build it up on your own. Um, you know, certainly we could have done that and we wouldn't necessarily have, you know, we could have been successful that way, but I think it's a matter of efficiency. Um, you know, who knows how long, I mean, to get to 172 units, for example, just going deal by deal on our own, we probably would have done like, okay, we did the seven unit, Maybe next we do like a 10 unit, maybe then we do like a 20 unit, maybe then we do like another 20 unit, you know, it just depends. Like, you know, you're not necessarily always going bigger either. You might have to kind of stay at the same level for a while. You're not finding the other deals you can do. So it, it would have just taken a long time, put it that way. It's not like we never would have got there. Sure. Maybe in 10 years we would have been doing, you know, the same mm. size deals, but it's a short, you know, I just view it as a shortcut. You're, you're just massively condensing all that progress and learning curve into a much shorter period of time, you know? So for it, in our it, case, it was one, one year from when we joined to when we nice. closed on our first deal. Nice. That's, that's not bad. That's uh, one year. Yeah. That's, that's really good. Cause you're developing relationships with brokers, you're underwriting deals, you're sifting through and trying to find the right deal, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You're, you're negotiating, trying to get it at the right price. That's going to make sense for you and your past investors. So, um, that's not, that's not bad at all. As far as your progression, not only did you join the coaching program, but you've also passively invested in a few deals. And when you and I were talking before we even recorded, you said to me that being an active investor was always the end game. So knowing that being an active sponsor, you know, closing on something like 172, like you have, what um, do you feel like these four LP deals that you did slowed you down from that? Do you feel like they sped you up? Do they feel, does it feel like it just kind of helped you get there? Um, so, so two questions. Why did, in the beginning, why did you decide to go passive in so many deals? And at the end, was it worth it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, everybody's situation is going to be different, of course. Um, so, you know, for myself, you know, obviously if you don't have the money, you don't have the money, right? You, you, you can't necessarily do passive investments. Um, but from my perspective and my, my partner, 
uh, investment partners in Seattle still. Um, you know, we viewed doing some passive investments as a way to accelerate, like you're saying. I think, I feel like it really helped us accelerate our progress rather than, you know, wasting time or hindering us or, or anything like that. And, you know, I think the biggest benefits of, of doing those deals early on was, number one, it just helped us get to know some of the, you know, active sponsors a lot better. Obviously, when you're investing in someone's deal, you have a lot more access to them. Um, so that's one big benefit, you know, and then just learning their process. You know, when you're in a deal, you get all their updates, you get those monthly updates, you can ask some questions. So it really gives a great insight into how different sponsors run their deals, especially being, you know, investing with different, all those four deals were with four different sponsors. So it's, it was great to see, okay, you know, these guys do it this way, these guys, you know, you can take, you can take different pieces from, uh, how different sponsors work and really, um, you know, put it all together uh, and develop your own system, which I think is, is kind of what we did. So, yeah, I mean, I, I'd say it's really uh, invaluable um, having those, those passive investments. And, you know, they're still investments. It's not like we're paying somebody, you know, 50000 uh for, you know, coaching or whatever, we're, we're investing the money, you know, all those deals are doing well, we're going to make a good return on all of them, I'm sure. Two of them are actually for sale right now, they're, they're going to do great. So, you know, it's not like you're throwing money away. Uh, if, as long as you're investing in good deals, obviously. Love it. I, I really like how you uh, express that. I, I was opposite from you. I, um, I didn't have the capital that it required to be a passive investor um, in so many deals in the beginning. And so I went, I, I went and partnered with other people that were co-sponsors and, and we started closing on deals. So we, we closed on uh, I think three or four deals before I had the enough capital to go passive and the passive, I don't know if you guys do any acquisition fees. I think some people do and some people don't. I recommend them. I think that they're they're good. But some of those acquisition fees are a couple hundred thousand dollars. And so there's there's been times where I had, you know, more capital than I needed and I didn't want to buy a Ferrari. So, so um, after an acquisition fee or whatever, I was like, finally, I can go to what I think is the Holy Grail. Um, I think it's interesting. You went from passive to active. And, and for me, I'm, I'm, I'm shooting for and excited for leveraging more OPT, OPE, OP, besides the OPM, because I really feel like that's where we should be striving for. So I, I think that it's really interesting that you did it first and now you're going active. So, so I have a couple questions. One, I'm, I'm curious if, if you plan to keep going passive in other people's deals as you continue to grow, because I know for on my end, that's what I, that, that's what I love. I want my money to work for me. I, I worked hard for that money I, and I want to get it out and I want to put it into your deal. And so you've been passive in more deals than I have. I've just been passive in three um, and I enjoy it. And I think for me, I want to do that even more. What are your thoughts? Are you going to, again, are, are you going to go 
do this as often as you can passive or do you think you're going to just be active for now on? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, uh, I definitely plan on, on doing more passive. It's really just a matter of all you're saying of how much money you have laying around. Right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, if, if I'm working on a deal and I need to reserve a certain amount for, you know, the upfront costs, whatever, okay, set that aside. But I mean, I don't want a hundred, 200,000 just sitting in, savings account getting, you know, 0.01% or whatever. So, I mean, yeah, it's always my, my goal is always to have my money, you know, working. Right. Um, yeah. And so any, yeah, for sure. Any time going forward that I just have some extra money that I don't have an immediate use for, or I'm setting aside for a specific purpose, uh, I would definitely plan on investing it uh, passively. And cool. kind of, I think like you're saying that the end game in a way probably ultimately is to be mostly passive right now. I'm more active just because I'm growing, but yeah. You know, and, and you're see. not a, a paralegal today. So <laughs> right. you got to make right. some active money no too. <laughs> you're young and yeah, yeah good stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, here's, here's the question that I think is on a lot of people's minds. Um, you've been doing real estate for five years and you've experienced a lot of different kinds of real estate. So I really want to talk about just asset classes um, that you're looking at, if it's all apartments, if it's single family, uh, what you're thinking there. And uh, additionally, I want to talk about things that you've learned um, because as you, as we get into syndication and we close our first, my first syndication was much smaller, uh, 16 units. Uh, 1.2 million, uh, much, much, much smaller than your first one. Um, that's all I could think of. I was like, 172 wasn't achievable back then. Like, mm-hmm. I didn't have anyone telling me that I could do 172. <laughs> uh, so, it's amazing. Um, so, what did you learn on the first one? I learned a ton on even my little small one that mm-hmm. you never knew before you closed it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then what asset classes are you learning, uh, going to, and then I just want to talk about kind of how COVID maybe this year has kind of affected your business. Um, so number one, the asset classes, are you just looking at apartment units only? Um, yeah, right now that's, I feel like there's a, you know, a strength to being focused at least when you're starting out, I, you know, I still view myself as, as starting out just having done one deal. So I feel like, uh, you know, we want to leverage our our time and energy and just really be focusing 100% on multifamily. And even within that, really just multifamily in DFW, we don't really look at other markets right now. So I think that's especially because my biggest strength is really being the boots on the ground um, mm-hmm. and really understanding the market um, and having that kind of, you know, inside knowledge of, of the sub markets and, and things like that. And, you know, at this point I've been here for a couple of years, I've seen so many deals, you know, I'll usually, when a deal comes on the market, there's a good chance I already know it, right. I've probably already driven by it or I've probably seen it or, you know, even, yeah. even seen it listed before at this point. So there's a real advantage, I think, to specializing and really getting deeper knowledge in, in an asset class and a location. And, you know, once, once you're very established there, then sure, I think it can make sense to branch out, maybe partner with people that are more knowledgeable about different classes, different locations. But for now, that's that's my focus. 
I think that's I think that's spot on. Great advice. And what did you learn? What were kind of those big ahas that came at you on this very first deal that maybe you didn't even expect to happen? Um, yeah. So one thing. I mean, this this is a little. It's specific, but I think it's still a, an important point that I don't hear a lot of people talk about is uh, planning your rehab budget as much as possible up front. So even even just starting at the underwriting phase, you know, beginning at that point, having your general idea what what might you want to do with your rehab budget. And this is, of course, assuming it's a value add, uh, you know, type property, um, because what I learned not until after closing is that it's very difficult, uh, especially if the lender is withholding a significant part of your budget, which our lender was, it was a Fannie loan. Um, and they were withholding most of our rehab money because it was wrapped into the loan. It is very difficult to get them to change um, the the parameters of the um, agreement about what you can spend the money on, right? Because it's all laid out in the loan agreement. Okay, you have this much for interiors, you have this much for amenities, you have this much for you know, required repairs, green repairs, this, that. So, and you know, the, there's obviously a lot you don't know about a property until you just get your hands on it, start running it. You can do all the due diligence you want, but you're, you're going to be limited in terms of what you know until you really start operating the property and your plan is going to change. Inevitably, you're never going to stick a hundred percent to the, the operational plan or the rehab plan that you had laid out before you closed. So I think just doing as much of that as you can, upfront is really is really key because you want to avoid having to change things around as much as possible even though it's inevitable that there will be some uh, changes so that's that's been something we've had to deal with with our lender and kind of overcome uh, is you know getting some of that money moved around from one project to another project and you know it's it's worked out we've gotten it done but it's it's no fun put it that way it's a hassle was do you think and i love i love that that was really good advice is there maybe one additional thing that you learned when you actually got into the trenches on on this deal whether it was on the closing process the the fees that it takes up front or um something to do with asset management um yeah i guess another big thing you know there's sort of something i probably knew but i I didn't necessarily focus on or didn't the importance of it didn't make itself evident until we actually started operating the property is just how important your uh, on-site manager is because I mean, honestly, I would say, you know, a, a good manager is, is worth their weight in gold, really. I mean, especially on a C-class property. I mean, you know, we probably, we don't have time for all the stories that I would have just in our first year of all the crazy stuff that's gone on over there. But I mean, it's the kind, you know, there's things every day, there could be stuff going on that would make your average person throw up their hands and just like walk out the door. I mean, you know, you know, the, a lot of these properties, there's, there could be drug users, there could be vagrants, there could be just, you know, there's all kinds of stuff. I mean, these are, these are not A-class properties, at least not that, that, that we're looking at. And our deal, it does great, but it is a C-class property. It's a, you know, it's a C-class area. There's going to be, you know, those elements that you have to deal with sometimes. So you know, the the type of person that can just deal with that stuff and doesn't affect them. And I mean, that that's a really great manager. And we got really lucky, uh, I think, with our manager um, on this deal. Uh, she's just 
unflappable, you know, she, she just takes it all in stride. And, uh, I think that's a rare quality though. So certainly, um, so that's now, now that, now that you have gotten lucky with just, a. uh, an onsite manager that crushes it, takes it in stride mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, has thick skin. Um, now that you've, uh, kind of gotten into it and you found how important it is, right? What I'm wondering is how are you going to ensure maybe on the next one that you don't get lucky, but you do it intentionally. And, and mm -hmm. how can that translate to the listener who's thinking of themselves, you know, Ed just said how important it is for me to have a good on-site manager. So, how do I get a good on-site manager? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, generally, assuming you're using a third-party management company, which which we do, and I think pretty much anybody starting out is is going to do on a bigger deal. Um, you know, the they're the one who does the hiring, right? They they do the staffing. So, it's the regional manager. Uh, you know, they have maybe a portfolio of you know, 10 or so properties that they oversee, they're usually the one who's doing the hiring of the on-site staff. And so in a way it's, you know, you, you can probably get more, have a more active role if you want in terms of the actual hiring process. But I think just, again, having a really good management company is that's part of their role is being good at hiring the right people. You know, I'm not like an HR person. I don't really know a lot about uh, you know, the hiring process, I'd probably be terrible at doing a job interview, you know, from the employer standpoint, I've never done that before. So it's not my, my thing, you know, I'm, I'm not, that's not my strength, you know, finding, finding hiring people, um, you know, to in those roles. So definitely having a management company that knows what they're doing in that regard, because I mean, you can fix, you know, in terms of third party management in general, you can, you can fix a lot of problems they might have if they're sloppy on certain things you can you know you can oversee them on the accounting side or on the cap you can handle capex yourself like we've handled most of our own capex you can handle your own contracts you know you can do a lot of that stuff if you have to um but you can never it's going to be a lot harder to take over the role of, of dealing with the on hiring top top-notch on-site staff so that's kind of how I, I look at it good stuff thank you um, so last question before we get into the final five is um, just about COVID. And I think, you know, it doesn't matter if, if someone's listening to this 10 years from now. Here's, here's what ha happens. We have bear markets, bull markets, and, um, you know, we might be recording this in an election year. We might be recording this in September COVID still exists of 2020. Um, and, you know, there's riots and there's, uh, you know, all sorts of stuff happening. And, and we're a little unsure of what's going to happen today. And man, in 2008, I owned an apartment and I had a, I had a multifamily in 2008 that ended up um, doing its worst in 2011. And so, there are there are a lot of things that happen with these market cycles. They come back, they they have aftermath, etc. And so I think it doesn't matter when we're going to hear this. Kind of learning what Ed's gone through during COVID is going to help us be better asset managers. Is going to help us have more systems in place in case another pandemic comes, etc. So how has your business changed 
I know you've owned that property for approximately a year and COVID probably happened halfway in between it. So how did, how did it change? And are there any, any things that you learned from, you know, the pandemic and this election year that might be able to help you or the listener on the next property? Yeah. So just in terms of, of the, you know, what happened with our particular property uh, through, you know, the last few months of COVID, you know, we did have, there was, it was a huge slowdown leasing. Of course, that was the biggest thing, right? Cause when there was their full shutdown, like literally there's no tra- traffic for like two months, there's like zero leasing traffic almost. So, you know, that was certainly a challenge. Um, but, you know, it came back super strong since then. And we got our, our best months, uh, July and August of, of the whole year that we've owned it. So it's been, you know, surprising, but, but obviously a nice surprise, but yeah. So in terms of lessons to take from it, I mean, it's a little harder with COVID just because COVID is such a unique uh, <laughs> challenge, right? I mean, it's like, oh, you know, once in a hundred year type event probably where, you know, it's not like a normal economic recession like we've had before where people can still go out and do things and at least look for jobs if they have that ability. You know, it's people aren't literally just, it's not like an artificial, uh, you know, lockdown of, of the economy sort of like it's been so... Yeah, I mean, it's in a way, it's hard to to apply to like a more generalized recession. But I would say just in terms of overcoming like a challenging period where you have that, maybe your your occupancy is dropping, maybe you're not getting traffic. Um, you know, we did for sure um, start doing a lot more incentives. You know, so we hadn't done any incentives up until you know COVID, but. You know, we we really put a big emphasis on like our our priority just has to be maintaining occupancy right now. Love it. Um, hey, uh, I need to cut you off, and I apologize. <laughs> it's only because there's some listeners that might not know what you mean by incentives. Um, so uh, sorry, sorry to cut you off. I just don't want <laughs> them to be like, what does he mean? <laughs> yeah, just like leasing incentives, like half off first month or waiving fees or things like that. Yeah. Um, you know, usually typical in A class, but usually in B and C class in DFW, you don't have, you don't do that. It's very rare, but it's kind of during COVID, it's it's uh, made a comeback in in those classes. So, yeah, you know, just really doing doing any what we had to do essentially to keep occupancy up. We were willing to you know take a little hit on our average rents or you know on our on our concessions, things like that. And I think that really paid off because then after those first couple of really slow months when things picked up again, we were in a really strong position and, uh, you know, it's, it's been smooth sailing uh, since then. Nice. Love it. All right. We're, uh, Ed, we're going to take a quick break and we will be right back with the final five. This episode of the creative real estate podcast is brought to you by both you and brought to you by the show itself. And we just wanted to say thank you, Jason. I really appreciate having you as a listener. And we have an ask. We've got a quick ask. If you have uh, been listening to the show for a little while, you love the show, and you haven't taken the time to leave a rating and a review, I just wanted to ask to see if you wouldn't mind uh, going into iTunes and doing a written review as well as a rating. Um, so that's our only ask. Let's get back to the show. And we're back with the final five with Mr. Edward Sittler. And Ed, what is a book you recommend? I would say uh, Multifamily Millions by Dave Lindahl. That was probably the book that kind of most 
revolutionized my mindset in terms of, oh, I can actually do bigger deals. I don't have to look at, you know, four unit, eight unit, 10 unit, uh, really opened my eyes in that way. Good stuff. Um, what is your biggest win of the week? Doing this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I always want people was, to say that. I was looking I, I, forward to it. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. Appreciate that. Uh, but, um, okay. I, now I'm flabbergasted because I always want people to say that, but they don't. <laughs> and I'm like, they're like, I don't know of the week. And I'm like, obviously you're on the show. Uh, yeah, so thanks, exactly. Ed. You are a brown noser and I love it. All right. <laughs> Question number no, two. Honestly, though, honestly, it is. I appreciate that. What's a challenge that you've recently overcome in your multifamily business? And it can't be COVID. You already talked about it. <laughs> I was going to say COVID. I, I would say, okay, another, let's think of another challenge. Um, so on the, on the, the rehab side, I would say we've had, you know, we had a couple challenging uh, rehab projects in terms of keeping them in budget and things like that. And we, you know, were able to implement some, I would say creative solutions that really got us, uh, allowed us to, to keep everything in budget and, and, get the similar similar outcome to what like the the kind of bigger scope would be um so that's something and again like with this is a pretty heavy value add there's always going to be stuff going over budget that's keeping on keeping on your budget is always going to be a huge one and uh that was a big challenge i think we were able to really um overcome effectively great stuff um question number four and five are pretty much the same um, just think about what advice you would have if you saw somebody who was completely brand new, uh, they're listening to the show right now, but they haven't done their first deal. And just think about the, uh, the main biggest, best advice that you could give to them that would be able to get them to start. And along the same lines, question number five is going to be, um, think about a listener who's who's maybe even done one or two or three different syndications and they're looking to scale to the next level, what do you think might be able to help them? So those are mm -hmm. question four and five. Yeah. So for a new person, um, I mean, I really would have to say finding a mentor or mentors uh, is going to be the biggest thing because that's the step that's going to kind of open up all the other steps in a way so to me that's sort of the key to, to unlocking the whole the whole field um and you know you, you can join like i did you can join a mentorship program if you don't have you know money for that just get out there as much as you can right go to every meetup you can and meet people that are doing what you want to do you know and and i would say you know it's always tempting when you're new and i have this too to kind of hang out and commiserate with other people that are just getting started and having the same frustrations that you are. And, you know, I mean, that's fine. You can commiserate <laughs> from time to time, but if, if all you're doing is hanging out with people that also are in your same situation, it's going to be very hard to get to that next level. You need to be around people and learning from people that have already done what you want to do. So to me, that's number one for sure. And if, if somebody has been doing the business for a little while, how do they scale? Or is that, was that the answer to that? If it was, I'm sorry. Uh, I mean, you know, yeah, I, mean, I, I necessarily, I wasn't thinking of it that way, but I think that's true too. If you're, even if you're experienced, there's still people that are going to be way, way beyond where you are. And I think the same thing does apply where, you know, like at where I'm at, 
I'm not, I don't consider myself experienced, certainly just having done one, once on occasion. So if I'm always just around other people that are at my same level, you know, I'm not necessarily going to be growing as fast as if I'm around people that have done thousands of units and are really at that next level where I want to be. So yeah, I think, I think that actually does apply to both actually. I, I got a lot out of the episode Edward, and I want to kind of share that with the listener, just pull out a few of uh, my notes, a few of my takeaways and things that I think we, my, I'm going to be able to implement as well. Um, so I'll, I'll do that and then I'll let you share with the listener just the single best way that they can find you or get a hold of you. And uh, w- don't do what some of my other guests do. They'll come onto the show and they'll say like seven or 10 different websites, uh, mm-hmm. just pick one, pick the best one and the one that, that serves them or serves you the most. Um, but let me, let me share a little bit of what I learned over the course of, of talking with you today. Number one is you are focused on apartments only. And I love that it's also DFW only. Uh, the, the takeaway there is that focus is critical and it's it's obviously working for you and I liked how you talked about how when you're driving by you kind of notice all of the apartments you know which ones there are and if something comes up for sale you practically already know it you've either toured it seen it listed before or um, you've at least driven by it so you know you know a lot about it and you're able to understand if that's something that you want to do. You can't do that if you don't deeply understand a market. And I think that's a mistake that a lot of the listeners are going to make if they don't uh, take heed to what you said. So um, I think that they should focus just like you have. And that's probably the way that they're going to get the most success. The next thing that I took away with is you you talked a little bit about how when you first got that loan with, I don't remember if you said it was Fannie or Freddie, but they're very similar anyway. Um, they're going to have your rehab budget and then you're going to say, hey, I need those funds. And they might say, we can't give you those funds. You haven't done this exact specific thing that we put on here. Mm-hmm. And so your suggestion of going through the rehab budget as soon as possible and trying to have it really specific so that when it comes time for you to use those funds for something, Fannie and Freddie and HUD and whatever bank you're using to get that is going to be able to release those funds. It's going to be too difficult to do that if you uh, if you just throw out a, a budget willy-nilly. Oh, we're going to put a million on the outside and a million on the inside. Well, as soon as you need 1.2 and 800, it's still 2 million, but they're not going to let it happen. So I thought that was a really big takeaway. The next one that you talked about was how critical it was that you learned when you kind of got into the first deal, how critical it was that you had such a great on-site manager and your advice on how to hire those on-site managers was to how to hire a better property management company, a better third-party property management company. You don't have to do it all yourself, but if you vet the company itself, they should have those, I guess, systems and processes in place, which are going to allow them to hire a good person for you. So, instead of the listener going and just skimping out on like their third-party management, trying to nickel and dime it for looking for 2% instead of 6% or whatever, 
they should probably find a really good one because it sounds like your on-site manager has been invaluable to you and your business. The Multifamily Millions book is one that I've heard on the podcast several times, but it's one that I haven't yet read myself. I, I actually studied a lot with um, the author of the book. Um, that's where I went through my mentorship, but I still haven't taken the time to kind of read that book. I liked your takeaway that it allowed you to feel like you would be able to kind of go bigger and better. I think you said something to the effect of if you hadn't have read that book, maybe you, maybe you wouldn't have been able to go being been felt like uh, going to 172 was even possible. So I thought that was really interesting. Your advice for a new person is to get a mentor and, and expand their circle. I, I suppose the best way to say it is we are the average of the five people we hang around. Mm-hmm. And if we're hanging around people that have just done what we've done, uh, we're not able to to grow. And I liked that that was also your advice for somebody who had been experienced, who had maybe closed a few deals. The best thing that they can do is be around people that that can grow them as a person. So really good advice. I appreciate you coming on the show. What is the best way for the listener to find you and get a hold of you, Ed? Um, yeah, honestly, just email is probably the best way. I'm always checking it. I'll, I'll get any message and respond uh, pretty quick. So uh, that's going to be my last name. So Sittler, C-S-I-T-T-L-E-R-C. Did you say C? Oh, I thought. S is in Sam, I-T-T-L-E-R-C as in cat at gmail.com. So that's Sittler C at gmail. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. And that'll be in the show notes. So um, if if Perfect. I confuse the listener at all by, by <laughs> wait, there's a C. Um, yeah. If I confused you, don't even worry. The actual email address is in the show notes already. So you can sure. scroll down, uh, copy that and send him an email right away. Ed, I appreciate you coming on the show. I am going to let you go. Until next time, my friend, think outside the box. Thank you so much for listening to the Creative Real Estate Podcast. And if you got value from this episode of the podcast, please take the time to leave us a rating and review on iTunes. Give us a written rating and review. We'd really, really appreciate it. I'm going to let you go. But until next time, think outside the box.